Well, good morning. Welcome, everybody, at uh, our Ashley Park campus. And if you're joining us online, we are honored and glad that you're joining in with us. My name's Jason. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church. And uh, if you've been around here for any length of time, you may have heard me say this before, but uh, I grew up in a pretty strict uh, narrow religious church. And uh, when I say that, it's not to be uh, critical of any of the people in that church. I love them. They're the reason that I'm here. Uh, but it was a pretty uh, it was a pretty narrow, strict kind of place. But I've gone back to speak there, and it was a, it's a great experience, and I love those people there. Uh, but they taught me something growing up in that church, something that I have seen played out in the lives of a lot of people. In fact, I've probably seen this dynamic uh, hundreds, if not thousands of times, uh, play out in the years since I grew up there. And it's, it's this, and, and here's the point. When you're deeply religious, it's often easy to start loving your religion or your belief system more than you love the people for whom that religion was actually given. And when you do that, when that happens, you wind up hurting people with this religion that was given for people. And then a lot of us religious people stand back and we wonder, how come nobody wants to be a part of my religion? Does that make sense? You see how that cycle just sort of works? I've seen that play out over and over and over again. In fact, I talk to people for whom this is their story. In fact, maybe this is your story. You ran across some religious people and it was pretty apparent to you real quickly that they loved their religion or they loved their belief system or their way of life more than they loved you. Or they loved their religion more than they loved your divorced mom or your gay brother. And it was very hurtful to you and it was very confusing to you. And I get that. And what I want to say to you, whether that's your story or not, is what we're about to discover about the life of Jesus and what he is going to teach us today, I think, clears a lot of that stuff up. If you're just tuning in with us and you haven't been here for the past few weeks, we're in this series where now, between now and Easter Sunday, we're just looking at some of the most significant moments in the life of Jesus from the time that he started his public ministry until his death on the cross. And last week, we looked at and Ed taught us what became basically the core of the teaching of Jesus, what many of us have come to know today as the Sermon on the Mount. It was some of his most famous and even most controversial statements. See, Jesus stepped onto the pages of history as a first century Jew, and he went into this system of first century Judaism that was based on a religious code a moral code, if you will. They called it the law of Moses. And it dictated and told them exactly how to relate to God, how to relate to other people. And they lived by this strict religious moral code. But Jesus came along in the midst of this and said, hey, I, I know what you've heard that it was said in the law of Moses, but now I say. In other words, I know you've grown up with this way of relating to God and this way of relating to people, but I have something New. And many things that Jesus was saying, in fact, most of what he was saying, came in stark contrast to what they had learned, what the law of Moses had taught. And Jesus himself said, I'm not here to abolish all of that. I'm actually here to complete it, to fulfill it. Jesus was saying, when you see me and my teaching and my way of life, it's something brand new. And you're seeing the full expression, the full picture of what God is like what God cares about, 
And people were divided because, again, it came in stark contrast to what they had grown up with and what they had been taught. And it seemed as if Jesus was placing himself to be greater than this religion or greater than the law. In fact, greater than the lawgiver, Moses. Jesus would say, I know what you've been taught, but something greater has come along. You've been told that this law, these scriptures, this religion, this moral code, that it's the way. But now I'm here, and I'm here to tell you it's not the way. I am the way, Jesus would say. And it left him with a lot of questions. And the question on everybody's mind was, is he right? Could that be true? Could Jesus be greater than the law? Could he be greater than the lawgiver, Moses? And he, does he even have the authority to, to talk like that? And so as you can imagine, it caused quite a stir in first century Judaism. And so everywhere Jesus went, these Pharisees, in other words, these men who were, their job was to, to interpret and to enforce the law of Moses, they followed Jesus everywhere he went because I mean, he was making some bold claims and they often wanted to try and catch him in a contradiction because they wanted to prove to people that he was leading them the wrong way because he was coming against everything they'd known and everything that they had taught. And so these Pharisees would, would spend a lot of time trying to discredit Jesus and point to things and say, see, he's not from God because he's going against God's law. And today, I want to show you another instance where that happens. It's written down by a guy named Matthew. Matthew was one of the closest followers of Jesus. He was there for this incident, so he saw it as it happened, and he describes it this way. He says, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. <clears throat> His disciples were hungry. So they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it, and they protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. In their law, in the code, in the law of Moses, they had a law that said, hey, one day a week, which was known as the Sabbath day, you're not supposed to do any work. Just take off and rest and don't go to work and don't do anything. And then on this particular day, it happened to be one of those Sabbath days. Now, the law didn't specify what work actually was. It just said don't work. And so the Pharisees had spent years and generations helping the people understand what's work and what's not, because that was the question on everybody's mind. What constitutes work? And one of the things that the Pharisees had written into the law as being work was, you can't harvest grain on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus' uh, disciples walk by and they pick some grain, they see them do it and they say, aha, you just broke the law. We got him, you know. See, Jesus can't be someone who's speaking for God or who was sent by God because Jesus is now allowing his disciples to break God's law. <clears throat> and Jesus gets real serious at this moment, and you can read the story and exactly what he says, but he basically stops him and he goes, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, guys. I mean, let's be real. Even you are not consistent with your own law. In fact, he goes on to explain to them, hey, you guys go to work on, on the Sabbath day. You have priests that work in the temple on Sabbath day, and, and you don't tell them that's wrong. In fact, it would be kind of like me saying to some of you, hey, you, you, don't, you can't go to work on Sunday. You can't go to your job on Sunday, and yet, look at me. Here I am. I work every Sunday. I mean, it just, it just it's hypocritical. And then Jesus goes on, and he makes this point. He says, look, you've got it backwards. You've missed the point. God didn't create people so that they would have to follow a law based on the Sabbath day to observe the Sabbath. He said, no, it was the other way around. 
The Sabbath was created by God for the benefit of people, to give them rest and to make their lives better. And he, and he says, look, here we are, we're walking around, we're hungry. We reach down to pick some grain to eat, and the first thing you think of is not our hunger and not our well-being. You go straight to your law. You guys are worried about a law, and that's your problem. You think God cares more about law than he does people. You think God loves law more than he loves people. And see, right there is the essence of something that you and I know as legalism. See, legalism is any time someone takes laws or rules and places them above the benefit or the well-being of other people. And that's what's happening here. And whenever Jesus saw religious people use the laws of God to dishonor the people made in God's image, he always condemned that. In fact, that's pretty much the people Jesus condemned the most. When you place allegiance to law above love and service to other people, Jesus would say, you're on the wrong side of God. And like I said earlier, that's why many people and maybe even you walked away from God or from the church. But as we said last week, if you walked away for any other reason other than Jesus, then maybe you walked away a little too soon. Maybe you walked away prematurely. Because, see, people who found themselves face-to-face -face with legalism, people who were religious lawbreakers, they loved Jesus. They flocked to him. And on the flip side of that, the people who held tightly to religious law, they couldn't stand Jesus. <coughs> then Jesus goes on and he makes a statement. And before I read this statement, I want to say to you, this is completely lost on us today. But if you were there on that day and you heard what Jesus said next, it would have completely rocked your world. It was revolutionary. It was shocking. It was even blasphemous. In fact, we talked about this a little bit last week. Ed mentioned this, but I want to go even deeper into this because it, it, has, it, has some, it has something to say to us about this whole point that we're making today. But nobody could believe Jesus would dare to say what he just said. In fact, he says in front of these religious leaders, look at what he says next. He says, I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. Now, that was the moment that you probably could have heard a pin drop. Because in their world, nothing was greater than the temple. In fact, I've talked to you about this before, but, and this is a little bit of a history lesson, but before the Jewish people had a homeland, before they were in a geographical place, they were sort of a, a, a migrant people, and they moved around a lot. And so they carried with them this ornate box known as the Ark of the Covenant. And inside this box were some religious artifacts, but most importantly, they believed that the presence of God resided in this box. They would carry it everywhere they had, everywhere they went, because they knew if they had this box, then God was on their side, and they had God's presence with them, and he would protect them. But then when the Israelites found a homeland, and they finally settled in one place, they, 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 they built a temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the temple, they built this room, and it was known as the Holy of Holies. And it was separate from everything else because it was where God lived. And only one day of the year, one priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices and be in the presence of God. Now, over the generations, this temple had been built and rebuilt several times. King Solomon built the first one. It had been destroyed and rebuilt twice. So the temple that Jesus refers to when he says, one here, there's one here greater than the temple referring to himself, He's referring to the third version of the temple. Let me tell you a little bit about that temple because it's important for where we're going. 
20 years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great was the ruler of Judea. Now, remember, at this time in history, the Romans ruled over the Jewish people. They were a conquered people. They were living under the thumb of Rome. And Herod's job was to rule over the Jewish homeland and to keep them peaceful, to keep them satisfied, to just keep them from causing any problems for the Roman Empire. And so in order to do that, in order to make the Jewish people happy, one day Herod decides, you know what? I'm going to build you guys another temple. Your temple's been destroyed a couple of times in history. I'm going to build you a temple. It was his way of just appeasing the Jews to keep them happy and to keep peace in the land. But this time, Herod decided, I'm going to build the biggest, greatest temple that the Jewish people have ever seen. Because, again, what better way to get the Jews to love you and to behave than to build them the best temple they'd ever known? So Herod builds this temple, and it becomes one of the great wonders of the world at that time. In fact, I want to give you an idea of the scope of this temple. So I'm going to bring an image up on the screen. I want you to look at this. Now, on the left side of the screen right there, you're going to notice that's the original temple that was built by Solomon. That was the very first temple built. Beside that, you see Herod's temple. Now, you get an idea of how massive this thing was. I mean, Solomon's temple is less than half the size of Herod's. The temple structure that Herod built for the Jewish people was based on 37 acres. Just think about that, 37 acres. In fact, to give you some context, look at the bottom of that picture. You'll see a box that's labeled the size of a football field, and then next to that is the size, a scale model of Herod's temple. I mean, you could basically fit about four of those inside of there. Now, here's what even made it more incredible. Herod built the entire thing out of cut stone. For his day, this was just amazing. Some of these stones were 11 feet by 16 feet by 44 feet long. Some of them weighed as much as 500 tons. Now, you think about that. Jerusalem is built on a large hill. In that day, with no machinery, no modern technology, 500-ton stones were, were massive, ton, massive stones lifted up onto this, uh, this hill. This is a major project just to get the stones there, to get them cut, and to get them up on the hill. For the ancient world, this was mind-boggling. Now, why did he do that? Well, one of the reasons was Herod set out to build an earthquake-proof building, which was unheard of in that day. There was a lot of earthquakes in that region, and he wanted to, he just wanted to, because he wanted to have some big monument to himself, honestly, but he wanted to do something nobody had ever done. So he did it. He built this massive temple for the Jews. It was an earthquake-proof building. Now, I want you to remember that fact because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. But I want to show you how precious this was to the Jewish people. When Jesus says, I am greater than the temple, that was no small thing that he was saying. About 40 years after Jesus makes this statement, Caligula becomes the emperor of Rome. And Caligula is no fan of the Jews. In fact, Caligula is basically a fan of himself. And so he decides one day that he's going to sort of thumb his nose at the Jews and just sort of put them in their place. And he decides to build a statue of himself, have it delivered to Jerusalem and placed in the center of the temple, basically defiling the temple for the Jews, showing them that he's in charge and their God is nothing. So he parades this statue all throughout the land as he's moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. And history tells us that the Jewish people turned out by the thousands and they would stand in front of the statue as it would move through their streets. And they would lay down on the ground, take off their headscarves, expose their necks to the Roman soldiers, and invite them to kill them 
rather than to bring this statue of Caligula into their temple and defile their temple. This is how important the temple was to the Jewish people. Thousands of them were willing to give their lives to keep that from happening. Now, of course, history also records to us that it didn't happen because Caligula was assassinated, peace was restored, and the whole thing was called off. But I say all that to give you a glimpse of just how shocking and controversial what Jesus said really was. This was something brand new. This was something they had never even dreamed of hearing because the temple was an indestructible building. It was where God lived. It was where their faith was pointed, and they would never allow anything to defile it. And yet, Jesus stands in front of them all and says, I am greater than that. And just when you think he couldn't shock them anymore, Jesus says something else in another place in Scripture that, that, that just would have just shocked everyone. Fast forward to a different time. This is another incident. And Jesus is with his disciples, and they're actually at the temple on this day. Look at what happens. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations that were on the wall. So again, they're actually in the building. Remember, this is where God lives. This is the epicenter of their faith. This is a massive, earthquake-proof, 37-acre building. Now, the disciples are impressed. I mean, they're in the greatest building they've ever seen. I mean, who wouldn't be? And they're just having this conversation, and they're talking about how magnificent the temple is. And then Jesus, he opens his mouth again. And I, before I read this to you, I want to just say to you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if, if you're trying to consider the truth of whether Jesus is God or not, I want to talk to you about something that I think you ought to consider. Uh, this will rock your world. This is, I'm serious, this is so huge. If you've never, you probably never heard this. This is not something that's talked about very often. But I want you to tune in for just a second because this very well might move you closer to understanding more of who Jesus is. Luke 21, 6. <coughs> Jesus said, The time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. And all these things, that's the temple. He says, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. In fact, the word that Jesus uses there in Greek doesn't mean that the temple is just going to fall down naturally. It means torn down or thrown down or pulled down. Jesus is saying each and every stone, these massive stones that, that Herod put on this hill, are going to be pulled down deliberately, not just off of each other, but all the way down into the valley below Jerusalem. And remember, this is an earthquake-proof building. If, it, if it's earthquake-proof, this is not a natural disaster. There's on, how in the world is this possible? Because there's, there's only one force in the world capable and powerful enough to do this. And it was the Roman army. But that didn't make any sense either. Why would the Roman army tear down this temple? Because Herod just built it like 20 years before, right? I mean, he, he, it, this is his great accomplishment, this is Rome showing its power. This is, this is one of the greatest feats that had ever been done. And it was put there to appease the Jews, to make them more peaceful, make them behave. Why would the Roman army do something like that? So what Jesus says is it's just not even thinkable. For them, it was like apocalyptic language. I mean, it was the end of the world for them. They, they couldn't even imagine this. So as you imagine, the, the disciples, they, they can't let this go. So they question Jesus. Teacher, they ask, when's that going to happen? What sign will show that these things are about to take place? And this week, you should go home and read Luke chapter 21 for yourself sometime. Take about 10 minutes and read this. 
Jesus describes in detail what he believes is going to happen. He talks about this horrible scene where there are armies surrounding the city of Jerusalem. He talks about people turning on one another and fighting against each other. He talks about pregnant mothers and nursing mothers fleeing from the city out into the hills. And it's a scene that just breaks the heart of Jesus. He's not happy about it, but he describes it. And then, 40 years from the moment Jesus said those words, it happened. History tells us the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem. There was an uprising, and the Romans had, they, the Jews had, had a group that was, it was fighting against the Romans and causing trouble. And the Romans just had enough of it. And so they sealed all the people inside the city of Jerusalem. And what they did was they basically cut off their food supply. And they just sat there and waited. They wouldn't let anything in, wouldn't let anybody out. And history records that the people inside the city began to fight amongst one another for supremacy, to see who would come out on top. And, 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 and food was being rationed and being killed for, and they just turned on one another, and people began to starve, and their resources became depleted. And then, on August the 6th, A.D. 70, the year 70, the Roman army finally moved in, and they took Jerusalem. They burned everything inside the temple, and the army of the Romans took the stones of the temple and pulled them down. They dragged every single stone from the top of the hill all the way down into the valley below. In fact, if you go there today, you can still see there are some of those stones, and they still remain in that valley. It was the Romans' way of saying, this is the end of first century Judaism. As far as temple Judaism is concerned, this is the end. In fact, it was the end because Judaism has never been practiced in the temple this way ever since. Sacrifices have not been made, and it was the end. And it was just as Jesus had predicted it. Now, here's why this is important. And again, if you're skeptical of Christianity and you're not sure whether you believe Jesus is God, you need to really lean forward, you need to really tune in for just a second because this, what I'm about to tell you, is one of the reasons that I follow Jesus. See, I don't follow Jesus based on just blind faith. I follow because of what happened in history. I follow because of the evidence. If you go back in history and you read the writings of Jesus' followers about 80, 90, or 100 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, here's what you'll find. They all write about this. They all talk about Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed, and then 40 years later, it happened just as Jesus predicted. In fact, they'll, they'll point you to the temple and they'll say, look, that's what happened. You can see it for yourself. And they do this because it's a proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is God. That, and it's one of the greatest, most verified prophecies that they've ever seen. And so it's something that the church fathers regularly wrote about. But you want to know what's interesting? It's never written about in the Bible. In fact, go and look at, at the four Gospels, the, the accounts of Jesus' life. The destruction of temples never mentioned. In fact, in the book of Acts, which comes after the Gospels, which tells the early church history, written by Luke, the very person who wrote this prediction, this prophecy down and recorded it, he never mentions the destruction of the temple. He never says, Jesus said it, and see, look over there. It happened just like Jesus predicted that it would, and that's why you should believe in him. He's God. So the question you have to ask yourself is this. How could they have resisted? 
I mean, the writers of Scripture, this is their perfect opportunity to convince the world that Jesus is God, that he is who he claimed to be, and they never mention it. Why don't they mention it? Well, the answer is simple. When the Gospels were written, when the book of Acts was written, when the Scriptures that you hold in your hand, your Bible was written, the destruction of the temple hadn't happened yet. They all speak about the temple in the present tense because when they wrote their words, the temple was still standing And here's why I bring that up. I'll bet somewhere along the way, a professor in college or a roommate or a skeptical friend that you have told you that you can't trust the Bible because the Bible was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus lived. And they just made up these stories that couldn't be verified. And that's how all this legend creeped into the Bible about all this supernatural stuff and you can't trust the Bible. (laughs) But come on. If you were going to write a story and you wanted to convince the world that Jesus was the Son of God, why would you leave out the most compelling parts? And the simple answer is, they didn't leave them out. And I bring all that up because I believe this, by itself, it's just one more indisputable evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that Jesus is worth following. This is one of the most verifiable prophecies in all of human history. And I'm just saying that not to tell you what to believe, but to say to you, if you are skeptical or if you're, you're considering following Jesus, this should be a part of your consideration. This requires your attention. The eyewitnesses who were there, they heard what Jesus said. They wrote it down. And Jesus was clear. He said, the days of temple sacrifice and the temple worship, it's all coming to an end. And when that day comes, it will be replaced with something greater. And Jesus was clear, that something greater is me. And at the moment Jesus died on the cross, the eyewitnesses who were there, there were people inside the temple when Jesus died, and they report to us, the eyewitnesses say, that there was a curtain separating the Holy of Holies, where God lived, from the people. And at the moment Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Because God was not there any longer. God had left the building. Something greater had come. And then over the next 40 years, that message of Jesus would begin to spread all over the world until finally the temple was completely destroyed and that way of relating to God was no more. And all along the way, the followers of Jesus would would constantly say these things. In fact, the Apostle Paul, 20 years after Jesus made his prediction, he said this, while the temple was still standing, Paul would say, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He lives in you. It was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. See, Paul is just saying to followers of Jesus, hey guys, you know that building standing over there, that big elaborate temple that you put your faith in so much? Guess what? God doesn't live there anymore. That way of relating to God is over. God has left the building. And you want to know where God is now? Because of what Jesus has done, the Son of God, the price that he paid through his death and his resurrection. God now lives in men and women, ordinary men and women, men and women like you and me. And see, <coughs> this is where all this stuff intersects with real life. If, if you got tired of the history lesson and you tuned me out for a second, come on back because this is where this intersects with your life and with mine. Jesus came to reveal the true nature of God and Jesus was clear. 
He would stand in the midst of this elaborate temple and he would say, you think this is sacred? You think these objects are sacred? You think this site is sacred? There are no more sacred sites. There are no more sacred buildings. There are no sacred objects. There are only sacred people because sacred is where God lives and God doesn't live in a building. God dwells in people. And that was the message that Jesus came to introduce to the world. It was the brand new thing that they were not expecting. Every single person you lock eyes with, every person you sit beside, every person you date, every person you marry, every person you are raising, every person you do business with, every person you live with, that you drive with, that you honk at on the road, they are all sacred. Because God is not in a building he is in people. And that is why Jesus went around everywhere he went. And he would say things like this. Whatever you've done for people, you do for me. Want to know what rules God cares about? Want to know what ethical code that God cares about? Love people the way you love yourself. One command I leave with you, he said. Love one another in the same way that I have loved you. Want people to know that you're my followers? Very simple. Love one another. Value people over religion. Because when you love religion, laws, temples, sacred buildings, sacred rituals, more than you love people made in the image of God, you are missing God because that is where God lives. God is no longer in a building or in a site. God has left the building because something new has come and that something new is so much greater than all of it. Would you bow your heads right now and let's pray. And before I pray for you, I don't know, maybe today this is all new to you or maybe it has just caused more, even more questions in your mind. And you're thinking, I'm not even sure that's true, but man, it, it's something that I would like to know about. It's something that I wish were true. Or maybe it just it causes you to want to explore it further. I want to invite you right now, with everybody's head bowed, if, if you just pull out your phone and go to ashleyparkchurch.com, there's a card there that says making the decision, and you, you click that link, and there's a place for you to, to get in touch with us and let us know where you are and what you'd like to, to explore and talk about. We want to help you take your next steps in understanding what it means to follow Jesus in this new way of valuing people over religion. I invite you to do that right now as I pray. And you can make whatever decision God's calling you to make or whatever you're curious about, and we'll help you. We'll contact you, and we'll help you take your next steps. And now, Father, thank you for Jesus and what he brought, this brand new way of, of helping us understand exactly who you are and what you are about, that your heart is not tied up in religious rules or rituals or buildings or sacred sites, but, God, you dwell among your people. And that means we, every person we lock eyes with is sacred because that's where you are. God, may we live this way. May we follow Jesus and his example in loving others the way you have loved us. And God, may, may we never put our religion over the well-being of people. Forgive us when we've done that. God, lead us in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, guys. We'll see you next week.